intimacy with God. And I hope that uh, some of you will really take that opportunity and, and dig into what the Scripture teaches about prayer. And even more in this context, learning how to do that prayer, engaging it, uh, even through the week. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. David Sherbino from Tyndale Seminary is coming to teach that. And, um, you know, that's really his area of expertise. So if that's uh, something that you would like, run after that biblical training. And that's why Night School now exists. And we're just passionate to see that happen in people's lives. Well, today, you know, we're going to do chapter two of the story. Um, there's so much good stuff to come. We're, we're in chapter two of 31 chapters. That's the second of 31 Sundays when we're going through this book, story by story. If you knew, this book is not the Bible, but it contains much of the Bible. It's the Bible in chronological order, which is sort of different because the actual Bible isn't formed that way. And this is going to really help many, many, many people understand a scripture in a new way. And we are passionate that, that the people of this congregation come to know the word of God more deeply, more profoundly, because the more we know it, the more it will transform our lives. That's why God has spoken, right? That we might know him, that we might be drawn into a relationship with him, that we might be made new. And um, as all of our uh, small groups are meeting uh, prior to this uh, morning, uh, they have studied and then discussed and engaged the topics that chapter 2 presents. And then, of course, you come here all primed and ready to listen to me speak about it or others as we go through this year. So it's really forming the, the reality of our church life from now until May. And we just really want to encourage people to engage. Even if you're not in a small group, can I encourage you to get the story? Read it at home. Think about it. Be prepared uh, while, uh, prior to coming here on a Sunday morning. Well, last, last week we looked at chapter 1 and we laid the foundation of the reality of the story. And we talked about the creation of God, this incredible and powerful and beautiful creation that God, by his voice, spoke into reality. Um, in that moment, uh, God created as the pinnacle of that creation human beings, Adam and Eve. And it was his heart's desire to come down and to to be in relationship with them, to talk with them, to engage them, to love them, and to be loved by them. That's the heart of God. It's an incredible thing that we see there. But, of course, Adam and Eve sinned and everything changed. And, 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 and the dream of God, if you would, was shattered. Um, it produced a sinful nature in human beings, and, and that was inherited from one generation to the next. So as Adam and Eve sinned, so their son Cain killed his brother Abel. In time, sin, because of the sin nature that was now part of every human being spread, and we see it in the Noah's, Noah's story, he had it had covered the known world. God chose Noah, that righteous man, in the hopes of recreating again, but even the sin nature carried through Noah to his son, and sin happened again. And last week we talked about hints of the plan of God to get us back into a relationship with him. We, t we, we saw hints of the upper story, the story of humanity and, and, and of all history from God's perspective. But here in chapter two, God really moves into the unfolding of the story. It is step one of the upper story from God's perspective. And what God does in this chapter is he builds a nation. That's what the chapter, that's how it's entitled. Um, he builds a nation which would ultimately be called Israel, through which God would reveal himself to the people of Israel, but ultimately to the whole world. Understand that. He, he would reveal his love and his grace and his mercy. He would reveal his power and his justice so that people could know who God is. 
in a remarkable and a beautiful way. And in the end, of course, out of that nation came Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one through whom God would get us back into a relationship with him, his heart's desire, and through whom God ultimately would restore all of creation. Beautiful, beautiful dynamic that we're going to look at today. And it all begins with a man named Abram and a woman named Sarai. Their names were changed to Abraham and Sarah in time by God. But it starts in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to read to you, and we're going to look at this together, but it's on page 14, sorry, 13 of the story. I'd really encourage you, by the way, to bring your storybooks along with you and make notes and, and really grapple with, with the reality of what's being said as we go. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. What do you think about that? Just take off and go. I'll ultimately tell you where you're going to go, but then this promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. The beginning of an incredible thing, but it, it happened because of the promises of God to one man to whom God spoke. He said, I'll make a great nation through you. I will, be, I will make your name great. I will bless the whole world through you and your descendants. Now, this is the upper story of God. This is his plan. And, and, and Abraham here is hearing these things, and he's hearing the heart of God, not only for himself, but for this world. But there's a problem. The man is 75 years old. He's got this huge journey, this huge adventure with God ahead of him. How many 75-year-olds would like to just take off and step into season number two of life? Leave everything that you know, all of your family, the land in which you were brought up, and just go. Well, that's what God's call was for Abraham. Um, Sarah, too, of course, who wasn't much younger than he was. Another part of the problem is that even though they've been married for decades and decades and decades, they haven't ever been able to have a child. How can a nation be formed from his descendants if they are unable to have a child? On top of that, you know, not taught here in the text, but Abraham had been brought up in the home of an idol maker. Terah was his name. Abraham had been brought up likely worshiping idols all his life before he encountered this God. And, you know, when you, when you start to think about this this dynamic, you know, when you start to think about the scenario that's being played for us, he and she, they were the most unlikely people for God to use to accomplish the purposes for which, which he wanted accomplished. You know, they were people who were chosen by God, and it just didn't make sense for 75 and a 65-year-old husband and wife to, to be sent out, to go to this place, to leave everything they know, to have a child, even though they'd never had a child, these, this idol worshiper. And I want to tell you, this is the reality. This is the reality of what happened. People who would never have been chosen by anybody in a hundred years to do this were chosen by God. 
And I want to tell you, this is the reality of the lower story. God has his upper story. He has his great plan that I've described to you. But the lower story of the people who are in relationship with his God is a remarkable story. And one of the things that we see in Scripture over and over and over again is that God uses people to do significant things in the accomplishment of the upper story, and it just doesn't make sense. Moses, a murderer, before he fled Egypt. Moses, a man who was told to go and speak to Pharaoh, and he self-admits, God, I can't talk. He had a speech impediment of some sort. Why would God choose somebody who's a murderer in the land to which he's being sent, who can't speak, who is supposed to speak to Pharaoh? It doesn't make sense. Think about Rahab the prostitute. Now, would you have chosen a prostitute to do the work of God? Would that have been the first person you ran to when, 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 when God's people need protection? And get drawn into the story of what God was accomplishing? Probably that wouldn't be our first choice. And you think about, as time goes on, how this just accelerates. Matthew, the tax collector, becomes a disciple of Jesus, a hated collaborator with the enemy. Tax collectors were despised in the day of Jesus, yet Jesus chose Matthew. Peter and, 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 and other fishermen, common, normal, ordinary people, and Jesus comes along and he gathers his 12, and he's, in his mind is recognizing through these 12 ordinary, uneducated people, I, by my spirit, we're going to change the world. And you've chosen them? Or someone highly educated with PhDs and so forth? doesn't make sense. That's how God works. Think about Paul the apostle who was previously Saul, the murderer and the accuser and the persecutor of Christians. <laughs> but God took hold of that man's life, and he became a powerful force in the formation of the church. And still to this day, through much of the New Testament, we read his thoughts and we're inspired by God to know the reality of who we are in him. I want to tell you, my friends, that's the lower story dynamic that we see repeatedly in Scripture. And while it doesn't make sense, it's still our lower story too. I hope you're ready to hear this, and I hope you're ready to receive it. Most people chosen by God, and I trust that's all of you, those of you who have trusted Christ by faith, who have entered into a relationship with God, whom God has gotten back into a relationship with him through faith in Jesus, he has chosen you to serve him, to do significant things for him. And the common response would be, whenever that is made clear to individual people, oh, I don't see that as a possibility. Highly unlikely. <laughs> God, I, you know, it makes no sense to me that you would want to use me to accomplish your purposes. I'm not able, and I don't know the Bible enough, and I'm not trained like other people are trained. No, it can't be. <laughs> God, I have a bit, a bit of a checkered past. And I don't think because of what I've done that I'm qualified to do what you're calling me to do. Like a Rahab or an Apostle Paul. See, this is how we think. And we feel it sincerely and we believe it to our core. And you know what? We are right. We are not the common sense choice of God to accomplish significant things for him. It doesn't make sense, but it's exactly how God works ultimately. So God is given glory. I love this one. And I want you to think about this in relationship to the text. God, I'm 75 years old. 
you can't use me. I'm done. I've lived my life. I've made my contribution. I've done my thing. Choose somebody younger than me. Okay, let's have some fun here. I want everybody who is 75 or older or who's getting kind of close to put up their hand right now. 70 plus, let's say. That's a lot of people. And thank you for your honesty. <laughs> you people might think that your time serving God is done. You might come to believe the reality that he's going to choose younger people to accomplish his purposes. I'm here to tell you today, according directly from the experience of a man named Abraham and a woman named Sarah, you're not done. I love the name of our new adult, senior adult ministry. I love the fact that we have new ministries bubbling up. O Oasis, it's called. We've got this new children's ministry on a Sunday morning and so forth. But Oasis stands for, and it's an acronym, Older Adults Still in Service. Isn't that fantastic? Because you never get to the point in your life where God can't use you in a profound way if he has called you to himself. See, my friends, we can say, oh, not me, I'm too old, I'm too whatever, but the reality is this is the lower story where God uses unlikely people to accomplish his upper story in dramatic and beautiful ways. He chooses us, he calls us, and he wants then from us a response as Moses, sorry, as Abraham responded. And what Abraham did very simply was that he, upon hearing the call of God, gathered everything together and he left all that he had to go to a place that God would someday show him. It's a remarkable thing. And it's pretty clear that what we need in order to get caught up in the God story very simply is the reality of faith. A deep and abiding faith. I'm going to read from page 14. It's actually Hebrews 11, verse 8. So it comes from way later in the Bible in the New Testament. But it says this, uh, page 14. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. That's remarkable. Don't read the story and just go, oh, yeah, I've heard that one before. It's inspiring. It's beautiful. It's the way of life with God. And, 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 you know, as this story unfolds, ultimately Isaac would be born. It took 24 years before that son would be born. And it took a ton of faith. But that's what Abraham did. Romans 4, verses 18 to 22, it's on, also on page 15 of the story. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. And that's what Abraham means, the word, father of nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body, I love this, was as good as dead. He was done in his mind. Since he was about 100 years old when Isaac was born. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why, in quotes, it was credited to him as righteousness. God looked down into this man's life and he saw faith. And God strengthened that faith. And God enabled this incredible man to persist in what God had called him to do. It wasn't an easy journey. Fifteen years later, they still had no child. Fifteen years. And in Genesis 15, God encounters Abraham and, and he says, I want you to look up into the sky. It says, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. 
He's encouraging him. He's, in, he, he's inspiring his faith. He's strengthening his faith. But then there was a question that Abraham asked of God. And um, 15, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man... Oh, sorry. I'm jump, I need to jump ahead a little bit. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord... Yeah, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. That's the whole story of Hagar and Ishmael. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God's saying, don't give up. I've promised and I will accomplish it. Even at your elderly age, even in spite of the fact that you've never had a child, even though your body is as good as dead. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What an, an incredible, incredible reality that is given to that man. God, Abraham comes along to God at that point and, 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 and says, God, I, how can I know? How can I know in my heart of hearts? How can I believe the reality that what you have said will come to be? This is actually in the story, but what happens, and I'm going to read it to you. It's not in this story. It is in the Bible. I wish it was in this story, but it's not. This is what I'm about to describe to you. God comes along, and, and, and in response to this question of, about how can I know, verse 9 and 10 of chapter 15 happens. It says this. The Lord said, um, no, that's not the right text. I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Genesis 15, 8. How can I know? So the Lord said to him, oh, it is. Bring me a goat and a heifer. I'm sorry. Um, bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young person. Pigeon. <laughs> if you know what's coming, that's funny. <laughs> Bring me those animals. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other, the birds, however, he did not cut in half. This is getting kind of gruesome and weird, right? If you haven't heard it before, I know many of you have. And, and what's, what's unfolding here is, is weird to us, but it's, it's an absolutely known reality in Abram's day, Abraham's day. It, it, it's the preparation for two parties to ever enter into covenant relationship. Kings would do this with vassals. Say a king had an army and he conquered the army of another king. Then those two kings would come together and they would enter into covenant relationship. A relationship would have to be formed where essentially that vassal king, that defeated king, would promise to follow the victorious king by oath, by vow, by entering into covenant. And these animals would be divided. And ultimately what would happen is that, that they would walk between the pieces of the animals. And what was being said is, if I break my covenant with you, if I do something contrary to what I am now committing to, so let it be to me what has been done to these animals. Now that's heavy duty commitment, right? That is a serious, profound, solemn commitment, even to the point of giving up your life in order to fulfill the commitments which you have made. And, and this, is, this is unplaying. And then Abraham falls into a deep sleep, verses 17 and 18. Let me read that to you. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. That's called a theophany, a physical representation of God. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And on he goes. God <laughs> entered into this dynamic. God promises. He covenants with Abraham. So this will be another incredibly significant part of this. As part of this vision that Abraham said as he fell into this deep sleep is that the pieces of the animals are here and God walks between them making his commitment. But the incredibly important thing about this story is what didn't happen and that's that it is that Abraham did not walk between those pieces of animals, those two halves. And what's being described to us here, the message is, if this promise is not kept, God is saying, I will die. You know, if this covenant is not kept, the curse will fall on me, God is saying. You know, if the covenant is broken, it will not harm Abraham. It will only harm God. If, you know, if I fail, I'll take the penalty, God is saying. And if you fail, I'll take the penalty. It's a remarkable moment that Abraham sees. And I want to tell you, what it's speaking to is the reality of what would happen in the person of Jesus Christ when his body was broken as those animals' bodies were ultimately broken. As their blood was shed, so his blood was shed on the cross. It's a pointing to the upper story reality of what God is, is going to do someday in and through the person of Jesus. I want you to see here the instruction that is given, the vision that is given, the upper story indication that is provided because this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross when he died. The Son of God died, not for his own sins and his own failings, for he had none, but for those of people who were incapable of keeping a covenant, the covenant, because of their sinful nature. You see, we couldn't live up to that standard. And God in his grace and in his mercy came in his son and took our penalty that we might live. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. Another story I want to tell you, and this one actually is in the storybook, that speaks to the reality of the upper story, is the story of Abraham being instructed by God to take his son Isaac, finally born, this child of promise, they waited 24 years. God, we're trusting you and we're waiting and finally it happened. Can you imagine waiting 24 years and then ultimately having a child when you're nearly 100 years old? Like it's remarkable. And then this son is given and God comes along and he says to Ab Abraham, I want you to take this child of promise, the one through whom I'm going to make a nation. And I want you to take him to Mount Moriah and I want you to build an altar and I want you to place your son on the altar and I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> that would have boggled the mind. That, that, that would have produced so many questions in, in, um, in Abraham's mind. But you know what? He does it. Genesis 22, 9 to 14. And it's on page 19 of the story. Let me read this to you. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Here's the whole story. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. Note that phrase. Your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on, the mountain. I will on a mountain. I will show you. There it is again. Just follow me step by step. I'll make it clear. 
Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, the burnt offering, not only will he kill him, he's going to burn him up. He set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go. While I and the boy go over there, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Hebrews makes clear that this man had faith that after his son's death that God would bring him back to life. Sound at all familiar? Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. You know, we read that dynamic and, and the whole thing fills our minds with horror. Can you imagine being asked to do that? Why would God ask him to do that? Like, God... You don't, you're not, that's not like you. Doesn't make sense. But Abraham, in faith, did exactly what God had called him to do. But my friends, do you see the similarities between, between this one named Isaac and the one who was to come named Jesus? Um, Isaac and Jesus both carried wood to their place of sacrifice, the means of their death. They carried on their shoulders the reference to the only son twice in that text, which Jeff's read, reminds us of the fact of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and this is the son Abraham loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Would not perish, but have eternal life. Ultimately, God provided the sacrifice. The lamb, as this text says, Abraham promised God will provide a lamb. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not actually clear, but in this story, uh, he's presented as a boy, but it's pretty clear to, uh, to academics that Isaac wasn't a little boy. He was a young man, and he could have fought his old dad probably effectively, well beyond 100 years of age. That young guy, Isaac, went willingly to his potential death as Jesus ultimately went willingly to the cross. And then another dramatic reality, and I think, I know if you've been in your small group, you've talked about this, Mount Moriah, where Isaac was to be sacrificed. Where is Mount Moriah now? It's the hill on which Jerusalem, the city of God, sits. That Isaac was to be sacrificed, this image of what was to come happened in the very place that Jesus one day would give up his life for you and for me. Isn't that remarkable? 
There's no coincidence in what's written in Scripture for us. There's a message that God is sending. He's saying, this is the upper story. This is my plan. This is my intention. You can't fulfill a covenant, but I'm going to sacrifice my son so that you might be saved. I'm going to take the penalty. The curse will fall on me so that you might be free of it. So that I might get you back into a relationship with me, that I might love you and you might know me and love me back. Because this is my heart, God says. See, there is a ton of the upper story in, 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 in this chapter. There's just a ton of it there. But I want to tell you, too, there's a ton of the lower story. And I want to zoom in on that. As if what I've said isn't enough. <laughs> what does this mean for us? Well, I want to tell you this. As God called and chose Abraham, so God calls and chooses us. Do you know that? If you know Christ by faith, it's because God has put his hand on your life and by his spirit opened your eyes to see and to believe and you have become his by trusting Jesus. It's an incredible reality. It's an incredible parallel, if you would, that we have with Abraham. Let me read Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. For he, oops, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Remarkable. For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Just stop there. I mean, if that doesn't blow you away, if you're a Christian, if you're a sincere follower of Jesus, you need to wake up. <laughs> God chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's a mystery you don't understand, but it's part of the upper story. Right? In love, the text says, he predestined, uh, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ and according with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one Jesus whom he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the rich, riches of God's grace. God just poured out his grace. Well, there you go, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. To be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That, my friends, is the upper story. And what Paul is doing is he writes this letter to us, which we still read 2,000 years later, and through which we still hear and understand and know the word of God. At the beginning of it, the whole, the whole reality that he's speaking to these people is you have been chosen by God. It's an incredible blessing, an incredible thing for we who have faith. Now, I want us to take a minute and just ask the question, why? Why? Now, in one way, I don't know why God has chosen me and not somebody else. I just don't know. That's the upper story reality that I leave to God. I just don't know. I know I don't deserve it any more than anyone else, but I accept it. But the reality is, for those who have been chosen, we have been chosen, as this text says, so that we can be forgiven by the blood of Christ, by the breaking of his body, by the shedding of his blood, so that we might enter into a relationship with God. This is the heart of of God for you and for me. 
It was the heart for God for Adam and Eve, our representatives so long ago, and it remains the heart of God today. I don't know whether everyone in this room today has come to that place where they have entered into that relationship with God where they walk with Him as Adam and Eve walked with God and they talked with Him as Adam and Eve talked to God and they knew Him and they loved Him. I want to tell you that's God's desire. He sent His Son to die. The sacrifice was accomplished in the life of Jesus to that end. And I would just encourage people today who are hearing this, and maybe they're beginning to get it. Maybe you've heard it a lot of times. Maybe you've never heard it before. But God desires to be in relationship with you. Christ has died that your sin might be forgiven. God, having entered into that new covenant with us through the blood of Christ, and he wants to know and love you, and he wants you to know and love him. You know, in many ways... That's the heart of the gospel. And all that it takes is for people like us to recognize the reality, to believe in what Jesus once did, and to approach God and say, Lord, I believe, and I'm ready to receive you into my life. I pray that you'll forgive my sin. Come in and let us have relationship from this point in time and forever. Boy, God would be pleased with that. God would love that. God would be thrilled with that dynamic reality. But I don't want us to stop with that incredibly good news because there's more. Because like Abraham, with whom God had relationship, God also wants us to get caught up in his upper story. You know that? A lot of Christians think it's just about getting into a relationship with God. And once I'm there, you know, my ticket to heaven is, is in my hand, and I can just go on about my life and do my thing. <clears throat> because that's what the story's about, right? That's why Jesus died, so my sin could be forgiven, so I might have a relationship with God. I'm in. Done. Good. Thank you, God. I want to tell you, that's not where the story ends. That's not where the, 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 the power of this passage ends because the reality is God called Abraham to be in relationship with him, but also to use him to accomplish his dream, God's dream, God's plan, God's purpose. And I want to tell you, that man Abraham, by faith, did what God created him to do. And I want to tell you, my friends, so can we. This has potential life-changing ramifications if you take it seriously, right? I want you to know that. I'm not going to play with it otherwise. <clears throat> when Abraham heard the call of God, Abram then, God said, I want you to take everything you have. He's a man of substantial means. He said, I want you to leave everything that you know, and I want you to go to a place that I will show you. That caused a huge disruption in the man's life. Huge. He probably didn't shouldn't say this. I hadn't really processed it before, but did he ever see his father again? You know? God entered in, and all of a sudden, everything changed, and he picked up everything he had, and he went in obedience and in faith. And his life was transformed. Not easily, but significantly. He did what God called him to do. I want to tell you this, my friends. We can come like Abraham and hear the call of God in life. Have you? Have you come to a place where you know what God has called you to in the building of his kingdom, in the upper story journey? I can't tell you what that is. 
Like no one could tell Abram. Nobody could tell Abraham what God wanted him to do. Only God spoke into his life, and he heard God, and he had a decision to make. I could say yes, or I could say no. I'm not talking about being gods. We enter into a relationship, and then we hear the call of God, and then we give our life to the accomplishment of the dream of God, the God of heaven and earth. Remarkably, if we choose. I don't get that either, <laughs> but that's how God works. And when we hear the call of God and we surrender our lives to God's purpose and plan for our lives, God will use us. Our lives will be disrupted. Everything will change. It won't be an easy thing. It will be a pretty hard thing. We, we will need faith, and we will need to have our faith sustained as Abraham's faith was sustained over 24 years plus. But I want to tell you the possibility is that we can get caught up in the purposes of God in this world and God can use every single one who claims the name of Jesus and trusts in Christ to accomplish the purpose of God in this world, in this time, in this day, in this place. I'm here to ask you today, will you do that? You know, a lot, a lot of Christians, I'm going to say it again, just think it's all about just me being in relationship with Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it. Will you do what Abraham did? Will you take time to hear the voice of God, the call of God? Will you take time to understand what God asks of you? And then will you go, whatever that go means to you? You know, there's an old hymn that talks about trusting and obeying. If we trust and obey, who knows that old hymn? Yeah, all the old codgers. <laughs> and some young ones too. I saw lots of young hands going up as well. Yeah. When we trust and obey, that's what we're called to. We're called to live for Christ. We're, we're called to live for the upper story and its accomplishment. We're called to give our lives not to the many things that people in this world give their lives to, but to the purposes of God. And I'm asking you today, will you do it? And allow your life, your life to be transformed. Will you allow God to use you? Will you allow God to draw you up into his upper story so that you, like Abraham, will make a difference for him? You know, my prayer, honestly, my friends, is that we will be such a people. That every single one of us who calls IPC home, every one of us who claims the name of Jesus will say, you know what, my life is not about me anymore. Whose story is this? Tell me. I told you last week if you were here. Whose story is this? It's God's story. It's God's story. You know, we talk about living this story. Whose story is it? It's God's story. As we, get caught, we come to Christ, we get caught up in the reality of God and what God is doing in this world and what God intends for this world. And he says to his people, yeah, I love you and I want you to love me, but now let's get busy because I will enable you and I will empower you and I've given you my spirit and I've given you gifts and I have called you and I have a purpose for your life and I am ready to use you. Now, I don't know about you, but that inspires me. <laughs> That excites me. I recognize you might hear that and be scared to death, as Abraham maybe was once. My friends, this is, this is the reality of, of the story. 
the upper story of God, the purpose of God for this world, the people of God getting caught up into it to accomplish that which he has created them to do. Will you go from here today, if you don't know what God calls you to do, to say, God, will you speak into my life too? Will you let me know what my purpose is? Will you allow me to hear the call as Abraham once heard it so that I might go in obedience? I'm willing to live with the disruption. Anything, Lord, for you. Look what you've done on the cross for me. Anything for you. Just, God, show me. And as you show me, yes, so I will trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's our life. That's why we exist. If you do that, my friends, God will speak. God will call. And God will use you for his glory, for his purpose, to accomplish the things for which Jesus Christ died in this world. I pray you'll say yes. I pray you will say yes. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the dynamics of this chapter in the story. I thank you for the implications that are in it for our lives. I thank you for the dramatic thing you have done on the cross for us and for this world. I thank you that we can step into a relationship with you, that your desire to get us back can be fulfilled because of what Jesus did. And I thank you, God. We thank you together that we can get caught up in your purposes in this world, the upper story of God, to make this world again what you intend it to be. So God, I pray for these people here. I pray that they will realize how critical a role it is that you have created them for. I pray that you'll reveal it to them. And I pray, God, that you will enable them by faith to say yes and to go as Abraham once went. Lord, it's an amazing thing that you call us into your purposes to accomplish your dream. Use us, Father, for your glory. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. it is in all its beauty oh one of the most magnificent instruments ever to be made oh whether in a large orchestra or an intimate four-piece ensemble the cello gives its earthy tone to the music now not as popular as some instruments and that might be due to its...